Hi everyone and welcome to this edition of the Talking, Learning and Teaching podcast. We have a very special guest for you today from De Montfort University, Nicola Ward. Nicola is a senior lecturer in clinical pharmacy and pharmacy practice in the Leicester School of Pharmacy at De Montfort University. She moved to academia in 2013 after 18 years working in the NHS as a hospital pharmacist. Nicola teaches across all four years of the MPharm programme, utilising a range of active learning strategies to engage the students based on her philosophy of learning from, in and through experience. In 2016, she established an innovative bespoke wellbeing programme in collaboration with student support services for MPharm students to address perceived high levels of stress and anxiety and to enable the students to maximise their wellbeing and academic performance. This programme was subsequently embedded within the curriculum and has evolved to adapt to changing student needs, curriculum changes and to prepare the students for the demands of the pharmacy profession. Nicola is a Senior Fellow of the Higher Education Academy, a DMU Teacher Fellow and was awarded a Centre for Academic Innovation sabbatical earlier this year. So I'm really, really excited to talk to Nicola today and we're going to talk about well-being particularly. So. My first question for you, Nicola, is where does this background and, and interest into well-being actually come from? Well, thanks, Kevin. Um, I think it starts really from personal experience and also really from my background as a healthcare practitioner. Uh, so when I was a student, I experienced some personal challenges with my well-being and I was fortunate in that I had a good support network around me and I got through those initial challenges. But then when I went out into the workplace, I didn't feel like I was actually fully prepared. I thought my my undergraduate degree gave me the, the knowledge and the professional skills uh, to be able to be a good pharmacist. But I wasn't adequately prepared for things like time management, prioritisation, um, competing demands of trying to study and work, uh, get married and you know have life events happening at the same time. Uh, and that resulted in me experiencing a very challenging period, not all that long after I, I qualified as a pharmacist, where I had to take some time out from work, gain some support myself. Uh, and it was very concerning, both for me and for everybody around me. And I suddenly had that point where you know, I've spent all of this time wanting to be a pharmacist and I've been to university and I've got a good degree. But actually, am I actually able from a uh, sort of behavioural and uh, sort of just ability to actually do this job in practice? Uh, thankfully, you know, I was able to negotiate through that and I had some re I had a very sensible line manager at the time who supported me through that journey. But it was really only when I took some steps personally in terms of my personal development that I was really able then to feel like I developed enough resilience to cope with everything that life, the NHS, changing demands of work could could throw at me. And I was really keen then that when I came and in, moved into higher education back in 2013, that students wouldn't have that same experience as me. And, you know, there is a lot of pressure on students now. 
and there's pressure on us as academics not just to give our students professional knowledge, academic knowledge and expertise, but also to give them employability skills and to prepare them for the real world. Uh, and I could see in our students when I came in 2013 that they were really anxious. You know, they there was I could see students coming into exams, physically shaking, people coming to my office around times of assessment that were you know, in quite a point of, of distress, some even at a point of crisis. And it just got me thinking, is there something we can actually do here proactively rather than waiting until the students are in this crisis point? Is there something that, that we can do as academics, as personal tutors, as a higher ed education institution to actually stop students from getting to, to that point? So really, that's, you know, and it goes back, like you said, with my ethos of learning from in and through experience. You know, that's how I've gained a lot of my expertise and insights. And I want the students to do the same. I mean, many of the things you said there about your own challenges have become quite common amongst the student population, as you as you alluded to. And I think many people listening to this will probably be able to identify with the things you said about yourself in their own students as mental health and well-being concerns have become more prevalent. I mean, what do you think are some of the current key issues relating to student well-being, do you think, at the present time? Um, I think it is they are students in a really hard time. I think even if we exclude the pandemic, which obviously has created a whole new load of concerns and you know, different social relationships and, and challenges that we've that we've had to face. Um, I think there is almost a bigger gap now for students when they come, when they make that transition from school or sixth form college to university. Um, and equally, the students themselves are perhaps far more diverse than they were when I went to university. You know, when I was at university, the vast majority of students in my cohort were white middle class students. Um, we had a few students that came from uh, another country. Um, there was like a reciprocal agreement between between the two countries, but predominantly the, the students were we were all quite similar to each other. Um, so in terms of you know, providing adequate support and learning strategies. It was very much like a one size fits all strategy. You know, it may well not have, have done that that effectively. Um, but I don't know, students that there were far more similarities. Well, we have such a diverse group of students now, uh, diverse in all sorts of different ways, you know, their age, their experiences prior to coming to university, you know, cultural differences, the colour of their skin, you know, whether their parents at the point of coming in, in terms of health, there's just so much diversity there. Um, so I think part of that and part of their experience, and I think some staff in, in higher education perhaps do see students through their own experience, like when they were at university. And it's very different. You know, I can hardly recognise higher education from my own experience when I was there in the 90s. And if I try and, and frame 
student well-being and student experience around my you know the experience that I had then whilst there are some similarities what worked for us back in the 90s definitely does not work now um, so I think it is accepting that that we have a very different stu student cohort the way that they're taught at school is very different you know I've got teenage children and you know I've got a son that's about to go through GCSEs and the way that they're taught is so different so much scaffolding that they're provided whereas by his stage I was already expected to be an independent learner uh, whereas you know they're, they're not necessarily supported to do that um, so then the expectations on them when they come to university are even greater you know, our students have a good expectation of how they're going to te be taught when they're at university, how they're going to learn. They haven't necessarily got those skills to do it. I think one thing you mentioned there that really resonated with me was the whole idea around learner diversity, because obviously one of my key areas of of interest is universal design for learning. And I think it's so important to embed UDL because our learners are exceptionally diverse. And you mentioned there that actually the diversity of learners is almost like a, an antecedent of these, you know, greater prevalence of mental health and well-being issues that we see among the student community. Thinking about the remit of the academic in relation to that, I mean, why do you think academics should be involved in student well-being? You know, isn't that the remit of student support? And, and welfare services or, or or is it more of a remit and, and responsibility for us as teachers you know at ground level in the classroom mm, it's a really good question it's something that that I get asked quite a lot actually when I'm trying to promote academics at all levels being being involved in in student well-being I mean obviously when a student is in crisis they need professional help they still need compassion from us they still need empathy and practical support. But yeah, students, when they are facing a significant challenge, they do need professional help. I'm not saying that as academics, we take on all of that because that just isn't appropriate. But I think in terms of we can, as academics, predict and anticipate a lot of challenges that students experience. We all know that exams are stressful. We all know that if a load of assessment deadlines bunch together, that that is going to be a pressure point for students. We know, for example, that group work. Some students find it very challenging, you know, be that perhaps because of learning differences, of cultural differences, just personal preferences for preferring to, to work by themselves. A lot of this we can anticipate, so it shouldn't be any surprise to us as academics when students voice concerns about these things and say that, you know, cite these as stressors for them. So I think it's important that right from the point where we are designing curricula, designing ways of working, ways of assessment, that we have to be doing that with student welfare and well-being in mind. And and think, you know, sometimes it's obvious, sometimes she's, I know through research that I've done, students say, if I haven't got enough information about this assignment that I'm going to do, I find that really stressful and a source of anxiety. Um, and some students want that information on day one, week one, even if the assessment isn't due until next year. So 
academics then not providing them with that information proactively um, is a significant stressor to the students. So just anticipating some of those things and being mindful in the way that we teach topics as well. Again, sort of showing students compassion and recognising that some stuff is is hard and some topics are going to be challenging uh, and just showing that that empathy in the way that we are teaching. Um, and like you say, incorporating, you know, making sure that UDL is is embedded in a meaningful way. Again, I think demonstrates to our students that we care about them because, you know, I've heard stories you know, since coming to academia of, of students going to see tutors or lecturers and it's clear that they are in some distress um, and the, the tutors just sort of hold up their hands and sort of say, right, have you heard of student support services? You know, and they just don't even want to engage in a conversation with the student. And to me, that doesn't say to the student that we care about them, that they are valuable. Yeah, we have to form our boundaries, but actually, if we're going to, you know, help our students to achieve their best, then we've got to support their well-being at the same time. So I'm glad you mentioned UDL there, because um, I always enjoy when UDL gets mentioned, obviously. But I think the key thing I took from your responses there, Nicola, was this idea of proactivity being better than reactivity. And yeah. the need for that almost anticipatory adjustment in relation to to mental health and well-being. So um, if we're thinking about curricula and how we design them, I mean, why would we embed well-being within the curriculum when perhaps not all students have challenges with their well-being? Shouldn't we just target those that are struggling a little bit as opposed to kind of create an entire curriculum that, that embeds that that positive well-being approach? Potentially yes but certainly in in my experience um, students don't necessarily recognize those early warning signs and the same as us you know as um, as academics or whatever line of work that we're in we don't always recognize when we are experiencing those early signs of a challenge in our personal well-being. So and equally e even if we do we may be reluctant to go and seek help. We may think, um, no, no, I just want to get on with my studies. They're, they're too important. Or we may think, but I'm not that bad. You know, I'd be wasting their time, you know, especially at the minute. We hear, you know, that, that mental health services, student wellbeing services are under extreme pressure at the moment. So we start to create these narratives to ourselves that well, I'm not that bad. It will just it's just a blip. You know, I'll, I'll you know, I'll be able to get through it. Um, so there are some and the stigma associated with seeking help as well for, for mental health conditions. And no matter how much we reassure the students that if they were to approach um, student support services, have counselling, CBT coaching, whatever it might be, we don't know about that. You know, it is confidential between the student and the the practitioner but I think still there is this perception from some students that we will know um, and then you have programs like my own like pharmacy where students have to declare they have to complete a self-declaration process each year regarding any physical or, or mental health challenges that they have that might impact their ability to practice so again that can that can sort of create further perceived barriers to actually seeking help. 
So I think by using like a population based approach, embedding it within the curriculum means that everybody benefits, even at the point that you're delivering a session on time management or supporting well-being. Even if at the minute the student doesn't necessarily recognise the value of it, I'm certain that there will be a point in the future where they will do. And also it's like we said, it's about being proactive. It's about, um, you know, using helping the student to develop strategies to manage their time, um, to know where to go if things become challenging um, rather than waiting until there's that crisis. And again, you know, our students very much do, you know, they they will look at their timetable for a week and decide, OK, I've got a lot in that timetable. And whether we like it or not, they will prioritise what they do and what they don't do. And if you've got a student studying engineering or mathematics, whatever it might be, and they see a well-being session on the timetable or an optional well-being session, you know, that you can attend if you like, you know, unless they feel like they're, they really need that, they're not going to prioritise it. Whereas if we embed aspects of well-being within their curricula, the students see the value of it. And I think it also emphasises to them that we see the value of it as well. Yeah, I mean, I think there's been some really interesting points raised there about obviously the difference between taking that sort of social or population based approach versus an individualised approach. I mean, can you just for the benefit of our listeners expand on those concepts of social or population based approaches to supporting well-being when compared to the individual approach um, and kind of what our role as as teachers and educators might be in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. So really social, social or population based approaches are about providing um, initiatives or strategies that um, are there for everybody. So you're not singling out individuals, um, you know, as having particular issues or challenges. You know, you're you're you know, you're providing it to everybody. Um, so that very much maps with the concept of like the mental health and well-being um, continuum, you know, in that it's not polarised. We're not either unwell or well or have good well-being or bad well-being. At any point during a given day, we're somewhere along that line. And that can change over the course of a day, a week, a month, a year, a lifetime. So it's ex- getting students to accept that actually we are somewhere all along this line. It's, you know, we can't segregate people into different areas. Um, so I, I feel like that that maps across to the, the, the population based approach. And it also means that people that do perhaps have either perceived barriers or perceived stigma to seeking out person personal help. Um, again, that, that they're able to benefit at the same time. And, and we really do find that students they support each other. You know, when we, we do these activities, I was involved in a session yesterday we were, where we were looking at priority setting with our final year students, getting them ready for um, their um, foundation training year at next year and getting them to think about what their priorities were in life. You know, do you have time for your priorities in life? Um, rather than sitting down with an individual student and sort of having that one to one talk with them, um, 
you know, getting all of the students to do that and they would share things, you know, and the students, would, oh, yeah, I, I feel that as well. And then the students gain from that from that peer support that they wouldn't get if we very much did individualised approaches for for students. I'm going to ask a, a follow up question just because something sprung to mind that intrigued me when you were speaking there, Nicola. Do, do you encourage your students to monitor their own mental health and well-being just as a sort of standard thing and, and give them any techniques by which to do that? Or indeed, I mean, you talked about the peer supportive aspects there. I mean, do, do you encourage them to, to to keep a check on each other, even if it's just in a very informal way, just to sort of keep an eye on each other or just to sort of look out for any change in in behavior or mood or anything like that? Yes. Um, so we do all of our. So within the pharmacy program, all of our year one students, um, I do sort of a bit of an um, introductory session with them on on well-being. Um, and I provide a number of different materials that they can access um, in their own time on on Blackboard as well, as well as hyperlinking and, you know, uh, signposting students to university wide resource and provision as well um, so so yes yeah, so we sort of we provide that that sort of information one of those things that we provide for them there is um, an emotional well-being sort of self-assessment tool um, that the student support services at, at DMU developed themselves a few years ago um, and students can self-assess them you know where they're at emotionally in terms of their well-being on a regular basis if they want to and their results are saved on the system so they can revisit those and use it like a bit of a self-audit or self-assessment. Um, I also do some work with them on something called the Healthy Mind Platter which was developed by Dan Siegel um, and I get the students to to use that as a self-assessment tool as well so you know rate yourself where you are on all of these different factors so you know how much time are you spending on focus study how much time are you spending with other people how much time are you spending doing physical activity on relaxation reading a book um, and trying to explain to them that a sort of almost like a regular audit of this is really useful because if you've got imbalance in one of those areas it impacts on the others you know, so if you suddenly stop contacting friends and family because you're so busy with work, then actually it can impact your end up impacting your work. So to be firing on all cylinders, so to speak, and doing your best in your work, you need a balance in, in all of those in all of those areas. Um, and we also signpost the students to the um, the student minds material on look after your mate as well. Um, if they do, you know, think that, the, that any of their friends are experiencing challenge. So, I mean, that sounds like there are some fantastic initiatives happening within within your teaching sessions and within your area. I mean, I I have an interest in learner variability, obviously from my UDL background, and that you know, I often see learner variability as akin to sort of barriers. And I would think that mental health and well-being is a potential source of learner variability because everybody's going to have a different state of mental health and well-being. But it seems like within your learning environment, you are doing lots of things proactively to try and eliminate that particular barrier or at least reduce the severity of it so that students can obviously access and engage in their learning in the most effective way, which I think is is fantastic. Um, I want to come on to some of the potential benefits now of kind of embedding well-being in the curriculum. So 
what do you think some of the key benefits to the students are of embedding uh, well-being in the curriculum? So what, what are they going to get out of this this sort of really strong well-being approach? Um, I think part of it with the embedding is getting students to see the value and the relevance um, so particularly on um, a professional course like the one that um, I'm involved in, you know, students do have a professional responsibility to look after themselves and their well-being. You know, if they're not maintaining their own well-being, if they're not showing themselves compassion, they're very unlikely to be able to show that in a meaningful way to their patients. And, you know, in a worst case scenario, it could even potentially cause harm to a patient if a student is really not managing their their mental health and well-being then they could they're more likely to make mistakes and errors which could you know in our profession could significantly impact a patient so we found by by embedding things within the curriculum the students very much see the relevance of them because I'm sure it's the same on a lot of courses. No matter how much integration we do in our curriculum, the students like to silo and pigeonhole, be that within a module, be that within a year. You know, and when we when I say to my fourth year students, OK, remember what we did in year one. You know, this is building on that. And they can struggle to make those those links and those relationships be between things. So. Rather than getting our students to, you know, OK, here's some activities to do about group work, like effective group work. Um, and then in another module, they'll do some group work. We have in our in the third year, our students have a big piece of group work that they have to do. We know that at least initially they can't, they don't like it. They don't enjoy it. They don't like the pressure of working within a group. They don't like some of the conflicts that happen. So, you know, what we've done is we've got um, colleagues in from student support into our introductory seminar in that module where we go through all the things about what they need to do, when the deadline is, you know, referencing all those sorts of things. We get somebody in from student to support to say, OK, you know what you need to do. OK, now we're going to work out how you can work effectively in the group. And they, you know, they get that give them strategies you know, how to work effectively. They talk about difference, you know, so how easy is it to work in a group when the other students are different to you in some way? And they do work with them on how to how to work through that together. Um, so then our students see the relevance of it. Um, they're not seeing it as a sort of parachuted in initiative with no apparent relevance. Um, so embedding, you know, those those skills those strategies within the curriculum is, you know, is really beneficial. And something that we're developing at the minute for our final year students is we're doing some work on. So they get a lot of teaching in year three on the therapeutic side of mental ill health. So they know all the different um, mental health conditions. They know how the drugs work that, that treat those. We're doing some work this year for them on um, more the sort of um, psychological and emotional side of supporting patients with ch mental health challenges but we're also incorporating within that how students protect themselves um, so you know as well as getting the students to okay this is how you might recognize a patient that's in a crisis we're also trying to get them to see how they could recognize when they themselves were in a crisis as well
Um, so sometimes it's quite subtle embedding, other times it's perhaps more more obvious. But I think the thing that seems quite prevalent in all this is is kind of getting 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 that student buy-in and I think obviously you know it's much easier to implement any particular strategy or approach or technique if you can get that buy-in so it sounds like that's a really critical part. I want to turn our attention a little bit now to the benefits for academic and professional services staff because um, we won't we won't ignore the elephant in the room we're both academic members of staff whenever we get asked to try and embed a new approach or a new initiative into the way that we teach or create courses or modules it often feels like oh, extra work um, although personally I don't feel that is the case with this because I think this is a, a, a massive issue in the present time through everything we've gone through and will only continue to get larger um, mental health and well-being but how would you sell some of those benefits of embedding mental health and well-being into the curriculum to to both academic and professional services staff? Yeah, I mean, I'd be kidding if I was saying that it would necessarily reduce workload. Um, in some respects, I know certainly when we started um, doing some of this work, actually we found that students were then more likely to discuss and disclose mental health challenges or things that were challenging their well-being, both with us and with student support services. So we noticed an increase in students referring themselves for counselling and wellbeing support. And because of the way that we had embedded some of the wellbeing work within the curriculum, there was an expectation that, that students discussed some aspects of it with their personal tutors. Um, so we found for many members of academic staff, it actually embedding some of these initiatives in the curriculum actually performed like a way in for them to have conversations with their personal duties about mental health, where, you know, some staff, you know, I find it quite easy to talk to my students and to approach them about mental health issues, but not all staff do. Some staff will feel quite reticent and like just wouldn't know how to word it. Whereas, you know, if you're expected as part of personal tutoring sessions to discuss you know, how did you find that seminar last week? Or, you know, our students have to do a lot of reflection and they'll reflect on on things like that. It can just enable and facilitate those those sorts of conversations. Um, as well, um, we found I found some benefits, particularly initially about working collaboratively. So, you know, the collaboration between academic services and like student support and welfare services, getting a really good, close working relationship with them is, is really useful. Um, I know, for example, our students um, find practical exams a significant stressor and just having a conversation with some of the staff in the student support services and explaining to them about about what what these exams look like enabled them to better support our students. Um, and I did some work um, sort of last year trying to map um, student experience over the year. So I managed to get information from our um, student support team about the number of referrals from our students to them on a week by week basis during the academic year. And then I, so I was able to look at where the peaks and troughs were in students referring themselves for support 
and I was actually able to identify, OK, are there triggers within our curriculum at that point? And that way we can see from an academic side if there's anything we can do to proactively sort of manage that. Equally, if student support know that, OK, this is a flashpoint typically for our students, they're more aware of that then in terms of looking at appointment provision and various other strategies. Um, so I think there are lots of benefits to all of us. Like, like I said, sadly, you know, like reduced workload isn't necessarily one of them. Uh, but I'd like to think that it means that we aren't supporting as many students in crisis. That perhaps a bit more work proactively prevents the students from having those, you know, those emergency situations. Yeah, that, I mean, that's interesting because I can remember a time right at the beginning of my career, which isn't that long ago in terms of the number of years. But because of the changes to higher education, it feels like a long time ago. And I was faced with a situation where a student presented with um some some well-being challenges they were homesick effectively but it was in that era when you know the kind of mantra was you know you're here to teach a subject specialism you don't need to worry about the sort of pastoral aspects so much you know they can go to the chaplaincy or to student services or whatever for that and I just wondered whether kind of having a more embedded approach um, sort of reduces some of that awkwardness around academic colleagues facing sort of the disclosure of any potential well-being or mental health problems because I can remember feeling quite out of my depth and quite awkward about discussing those sorts of issues because you know I, my remit at the time was to sort of teach my my specialism so I just wonder whether anybody had kind of gained any any confidence from it or kind of felt more comfortable uh, addressing any sort of any personal disclosures anything that you might have heard Nicola? Yeah, I certainly have have heard that, that it, you know, it, these sort of embedding things within the curriculum um, provided like a conduit, if you like, for these conversations to to happen more more freely. Um, and students also knowing that actually we want to have these conversations with them and we're happy to and that we do actually care that we're not just there to provide academic knowledge we teach you you know we we give you our the benefit of our expertise in our in our specialist field uh, but then if for anything else you'd go somewhere else because I think that fails to recognize the direct link between well-being and performance you know and if as academics you know we would say what do you want from your students we want them to achieve their best you know we want the students that are capable of you know high honours degrees to achieve those high honours degrees um, but we can't do that if we completely separate well-being and, you know, issues like you describe of homesickness or, you know, struggling to transition to university life. If we completely separate that from, you know, their academic achievements, it's just not going to work. I'm glad you mentioned performance there, because obviously performance within the university context is important. But I just want to turn our attention to to sort of performance beyond university so after a student has graduated I mean are there any benefits to the embedding mental health and well-being approach to students after they've graduated do you think in in their kind of you know in their career effectively mm. so one thing that I describe when I've done some I do some workshops with some of our students um, that very much looking ahead so I did some workshops over the last year looking at sort of managing stressful situations in the workplace 
um, and we discussed some case studies together um, that I've that I've put together about sort of you know sort of scenarios of new trainees that perhaps have taken on all sorts of different roles to try and appear keen to their um, employer they're doing part-time work as well they're um, they've perhaps a relationship has just ended or they've had a family bereavement and I get the students to talk through okay what would you do you know if you'd taken this person for a coffee and they were telling you this how would you support them because as well I find that depersonalizing situations like that students actually get far more insight you know, if I said, if you were experiencing these, what would you do? Sometimes they can be a bit uncertain. But if you say, OK, a friend is going through this or a colleague, they're far better equipped to look at it. But I say to students, you know, you will make mistakes during your time at university. You will get things a bit wrong. You know, you'll think that staying up all night is the way to get stuff done. And uh, you'll soon find out that perhaps it isn't always the best thing to do. Or you'll put all your efforts into your revision and stop going to the gym or stop, you know, going out with your friends. And then you'll discover the hard way that that's not the best way. But I say, you know, university is a safe space to make mistakes. You know, if if you have a rough patch, you've got support around you. OK, so you might not end up getting the best mark that you really think you're capable of. But, you know, if you fail it, you can do it again. You can get feedback, you can improve. Um, so it's far better to to explore different strategies as a student when you're surrounded by support rather than when you're out in the workplace. So what I say to our students is develop these strategies now. Find out what your early warning signs are. And if you have those early warning signs of, of you getting stressed or, you know, overloaded, you know, what can you do? You know, what is it that makes gets you through that that challenge you know what can you do who can you talk to so that then they've got that robust strategy when they go out into work because you know we know that there are work-based stressors as well so if you have a stressed student they're likely to be stressed in the workplace so if we can help them to build those strategies now then you know, it's far better for them in the workplace. And I know certainly within healthcare professions, when people go for interviews for, for jobs, it's a really common question now is how do you manage your well-being? You know, this job is demanding. How are you going to cope with that? Um, and students could be quite surprised when they think, well, I'll be asked that. And yeah, that's really important because you're not going to to be performing at your best in that role if you haven't you know got a good strategy to manage your well-being so it's almost future proofing the students then isn't it for for the for the world of employment which is obviously part of the the reason we exist that's what we're here to do and i think it's a really important initiative i mean i wish i'd have had that when i was a, a an undergraduate or even postgraduate student actually um i want to draw things to a close by by sort of thinking about sort of if 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 i was a novice educator and I wanted some quick ideas or recommendations in terms of how to embed aspects of well-being into my module or my course or even my individual teaching sessions. What what sorts of things could I be doing, Nicola, to, to, to help me with that? Mm -hmm. um, well, so certainly I started off by asking students. So I sort of said to them, OK, wh where are your biggest sources of stress? OK, you know, is it university? Is it from external, you know, relationships, home environment, 
things like that. And then when I got them to talk about, OK, so let's look specifically at the study related sources of stress. Um, I got them to tell me exactly what it was that was, you know, that were the significant issues. And then I started then when I was looking at what we needed to do, I started with those priorities because you can't do everything at once. So identifying what are the real priorities for your students? And it may surprise you. It probably won't surprise you what those priorities are. Um, so then starting. So, you know, our students found their practical exams, big source of stress. When we looked at that more, it was they felt if they didn't have enough information, they hadn't had enough time to practice. Those were big sources of stress. Um, so even just getting those fundamental things right reduces a lot of the stress associated with it. And then, yes, some students might benefit from some sort of stress management techniques um, and things like that as well. But within the context of their exams, you know, if you say to very enthusiastic students, you know, these techniques will help you perform at your best. They're engaged with it, whereas this is if you sort of portray it as a more fluffy sort of, oh, this is all about managing your well-being, they're less likely to to engage with it. So that's a, you know, that can be a really good starting point. Find out what it is that the that the students want. Um, like find out as well. So if again, if you know your course well, um, you know, you'll know the personality type of your students. So it's really important that we do think about like who are our students so like our students in pharmacy are perfectionists you know we we you know you want the general public want their pharmacists to pay attention to detail you know the odd extra naught here and there is really significant in you know in our role but unfortunately it means that a lot of our students are perfectionists so if we know that before we come in you know, there we, we know also that they perhaps haven't got the same level of confidence that perhaps medical students have. Um, you know, we can look at the demographic and cultural profile, the age profile of our students again, and that helps us to build a picture of what's going to work. Um, you know, if you look at nursing students, we know that nursing students are very compassionate, empathetic people. They're not always as great as great as showing themselves compassion. You know, they demonstrate compassion to others before themselves. So, again, it just helps you to think about what is going to work and, you know, how you provide those, wh whatever it is that you do. Again, what are the preferences of your of your students? You know, if you forget those basics, you can put an awful, awful lot of effort into doing things and basically nobody engages with it. So, you know, what are the stresses for your students? If it is something like group work, then you know, do similar things to what to what we did, do some, you know, as well as telling the students all about the, you know, the facts and the requirements of that assessment, do some work with them on, OK, how can we make this work? Um, how can you get the best out of a, a group activity? Um, placements, you know, some programmes that have placements, student, students find those really stressful. So there are things you can do to prepare your students for those for those pressures. So, yeah, don't try and, you know, like achieve world peace in five minutes. You know, it is sort of starting small and starting with the things that students really want.
I mean, I think that's fantastic advice because it, it just resonates as being good teaching. I mean, one of the things we always say in relation to responding to learner variability is to get to know your learners. The more you know about them, the more you know uh, how they enjoy learning, what their preferences are, what they don't like doing, what makes them anxious, what makes them stressful, the better you will be at serving their specific needs. And it sounds like a very similar strategy. Uh, Nicola, I want to thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure and an education. I think there's been some absolutely fantastic recommendations and ideas shared. And um, hopefully at some point in the future, we can get you back on the Talking Learning and Teaching podcast. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Nicola. Take care.